Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I'm really delighted to welcome Stephanie Argy to the podcast today. Stephanie is an editor, writer, designer, and all-around storytelling professional. She is currently on staff at the International Society for Technology and Education, where she oversees books that help educators use EdTech to transform learning. She also freelances for other publishers and organizations, and she currently serves on the Board of Governors of the Editorial Freelancers Association. Stephanie has made award-winning movies and written extensively about the art, craft, technology of filmmaking. She is now developing her craft as a writer of historical mystery writers, and Sisters in Crime has been an invaluable source of inspiration, information, and camaraderie. She has a BA in history from UCLA, an MS in journalism from Columbia University, and an MS in writing with specialization in book publishing from Portland State University. She lives in Paris, France. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am so honored to be here. Well, I'm, I'm, first of all, let me just say, I'm very jealous of where you live. <laughs> I would have made you go in a cafe or something to do this podcast, but um, I, as part of what we're talking about on the writer's podcast, I am really interested in talking to other publishing professionals, um, and, but to still talk about the writing journey and, and what that looks like. And you've got a really interesting um, career that I want to unpack. So let's start, you know, where I start, um, you know, with a little bit of a different spin on it. When did you decide you wanted to make your life in publishing? You, I don't know if it was a decision quite as much as a happy accident. Um, I was moving along. I was, I was you know, a happy filmmaker, making movies, traveling on the film festival circuit. And um, I started to chafe a little bit at the form of the movie, this little box that was so small. When we would go to film festivals and there was so much more to talk about. We would do the Q&As and I could talk about the research and I could talk about the production. And I started wondering, how can the this form be expanded. And I started looking into apps and I started looking into different ways of combining movies with prose, with images, and having the ability to go off in different directions and a box that could hold all of that. And I suddenly realized that the box already existed and it was called a book. And <laughs> I wondered, well, can I, how can I learn more about publishing? Is there a program? And at the time, I was living in Portland, Oregon, so I started doing research, and I found that Portland State has one of the few book publishing programs mm -hmm. in the United States. There really aren't that many of them. Um, so I applied, and I got in, and it's a two-year master's program, which is amazing. And I initially thought that I was doing this to educate myself for my own projects. But the more time I spent in a program, the more I loved the process of publishing and it to cultivate books to work with authors to um, see a story or a nonfiction piece or a, a book come into being was just such an amazing process and I found that I was my background made me kind of a generalist so I love design I love editing I love thinking about how to market a book and connect it to its audience. So it was a really great fit. And um, in my second year, I heard about this internship at a place called the International Society for Technology and Education. And I thought, digital, I love digital. I love technology. I'll talk to these people. Um, and I did, and I got the internship. And as it got close to my graduation, they said, um, how would you like to work for us as a contractor? And I said, sure. Mm -hmm. And then the senior editor had to go on maternity leave. And she said, 
how would you like to take over all my books while I'm away? And I said, sure. And <laughs> by the time she came back, I didn't want to leave and they didn't want me to leave. So they made me a, a physician on staff and I've been there ever since, which um, I, I came on staff officially in early 2019. And, and um, it's been a a really interesting period of time to work for an organization that, that <laughs> works in ed tech. Um, yes. The whole, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. That I was know, my I, whole story. Well, I mean, it, you know, we allude to this and, you know, who knows if people find these in an archive somewhere in 25 years, they may not really understand the context of how disruptive the pandemic was. Um, to, to education and to teaching and to continues to be to it to a large extent. Um, but how much people had to learn it just trial by fire, like within two weeks had to figure out how to do all this. Um, yeah. So it was a challenging time, but obviously you were up to the challenge. Yeah, it was. And it was just it was fun to be around that organization and especially our authors who had so much expertise and so much to give to educators who were in this moment of just tell me what to do right now. Give me a lesson that I can use with my kids online. And, um, uh, and our authors were there for those people and it was great. Um, so let's talk and I'm going to, I am going to circle back to your historical mystery. Don't think that I'm, I'm, you know, letting that one go in the, uh, in the bio, but talk to me about, um, being an editor and what, you know, you're an editor in nonfiction. Um, but I think in general, we don't always understand the different types of editors and what an editor does. And I do think that that's a gift for people who are writing to that you can get collaborators at all these different stages of your writing who don't want to rewrite your book. They just want to make it better and work with you. So can you explain what an editor does? Absolutely. And, and I'm so glad that, that you asked that because I think it is an area of, of mystery for, for a lot of writers. Before I went into the publishing program, I really didn't understand um, all the different types of editing that exist. Um, so sort of from, from beginning toward end of the process and, and most, you know, most, um, structural to least, um, the, the first step when a, when a manuscript is almost in a rough, you know, a, a diamond in the rough sort of phase, the first step of editing is developmental editing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, an editor will, will work as kind of a, a guide to, you know, as almost a first reader, um, giving a lot of input on structural issues. So a mm -hmm. developmental editor might not mark up the manuscript at all, but might come in and say, um, let's look at this character's arc. How, how does this character grow over the span of the entire story? Or um, what is this subplot doing here? How is this functioning? Or does your book start in the right place? Maybe yeah. it's starting a little bit too early or too late. So it's really the big structural questions and, and queries and conversations back and forth. And um, I love, I love developmental editing. And I, and my current role, we're lucky because we get to, to do that in a nonfiction way. So Again, we get to structure the book, and it's very, very exciting. Um, then once once the big overall form of the book is in shape, and the lang we move on to the level of language. And language is where a copy editor or a line editor might come in and say, this paragraph is a little bit confusing, or maybe this sentence goes on too long, or sometimes it can be a broader observation, like, Across the span of your entire work, you have a tendency to use the passive voice. Is there a way that we could adjust that? You're, you're relying too much on a lot of helper words. Um, so it's starting to get into how does how does the actual language sound? Mm -hmm. The whole structure works. The framework of the house is good. But now you want to work in copy editing with how does a language sound? How does um, How is the message coming across on a paragraph by paragraph level? Um, and then once that happens, the book will then go into design. Everybody's happy with how the story, the overall story, how it's being told. It goes into layout. It comes back from layout 
this is especially the case of a nonfiction book, which is, can be very highly designed. The proofreader will come in then and start looking at, all right, did, did something, maybe a, a subhead is the wrong, wrong size, a font is wrong, or um, we think about widows and orphans, which are little stray lines at the bottom or the top of the page that just disrupt the eye a little bit. Can you make it flow? Um, and it, it's, a, it's a design issue as well, but you can look for, are there rivers of blank spaces that run through the page? A proofreader, a proofreader might look for things like that, or if mm-hmm. a book has images, do the captions work? Are the, are the figures and the captions matching? So that gets onto a really granular visual kind of level. Um, very, very specific. So as you can see, it gets broad to, to tighter to very, very tight how it is on the page. Um, and an editor can do all of those things. Um, and as I said, with where I work, our book team is relatively small. And so we tend to do a lot of, of all of that work, um, stepping through the process with the writer. Well, and when you're uh, writing fiction, so just, just throwing this in there as well, um, editors do the same things, whether you, if you're traditionally published you may want to hire and a developmental editor, a copy editor, before you put your book out there. And the reason um, you may want to do that is to make sure it's working, um, you know, before you submit it for query. But if you've already got an agent and editor you're working with, um, they'll play those roles. Um, a developmental editing is also... Uh, trusting that the person who's doing the developmental editing isn't isn't rewriting your book. It's still your book. They're just trying to make your book better. So when you decide to work with a developmental editor, it's really important that that person understands that. They don't try to rewrite your book. It's your book. They're just fixing it. (laughs) Exactly. Well, when I was when I was a filmmaker, um, I always had a, a, a little pang of envy of my actors because as a filmmaker, I would generate a story and these actors would step into it and interpret it, that they would live within the world that I had created. And I find that as an editor, I have that experience um, when I when I pick up a work, whether it's fiction or whether it's nonfiction, I let go of a certain aspect of myself and I give myself over to that work and say, okay, how do I, how do I live in here? How do I help it become as clear as it can be? How can I help it become the most itself that it can be? Um, there's a, there was a woman, Beatrice Ward, who was a scholar of typography. And she would talk about how typography should not be intrusive. It should be like a crystal goblet. And let the contents show through as well as possible. And that's how I see the role of an editor. I don't want to occlude what the writer is doing. I want to enhance it and present it and make it as beautiful and as clear as it possibly can. Yeah, and for writers, um, your developmental editor could also be a, a trusted reader. I mean, it could be, you know, beta readers. Um, but there, you you always want to work with somebody. Tell me if you think this is true. Who um, it's better to have outside voices rather than somebody who loves you and wants you to succeed because you need somebody who'll also be honest with you and say this isn't Very the beginning much. of the book. This is you know <laughs> you started the book fifty pages too too late. Uh, you need to start, you know, this is the inciting incident. This is where it starts. Or um, this character arc, you're, you're wasting this fabulous character. You're not doing them justice um, and that sort of thing. So you do, having an outside um, eye on your work is a gift. It is such a gift. I'm, I'm One of the books that I'm editing right now is this fabulous book called Storytelling with Purpose. And it's by an educator who teaches his his high school students journalism and filmmaking and other kinds of digital storytelling. And he talks about the art of feedback and says, feedback is a gift. And it really is. I've been been really fortunate to be in, in, to have writing group companions who are just so thoughtful and really brilliant and 
mm-hmm. you know, so helpful. Um, but I think what you, you mentioned about finding someone who can be honest, it's also being honest is a learned skill. And those people around us, as much as they might love us and and want to please us and maybe even want to be honest, may not have the ability to do it. And it's easier to simply say, it's great. I love it. You're the best writer ever. As opposed to learning those ways of, of sandwiching criticism and saying, this is really working. Let me show you something that, you know, this is you at your best. This is an area that needs to rise to that level. There are different ways of being honest without completely deflating somebody's passion. And I think right. that's a, a learned ability. Right. Helping them uncover their best writing ability and being honest without being cruel or deflating. So as you said, I mean, it's also when you when somebody needs to learn that skill as well. I mean, when, you know, it's not automatic that people are going to be good at criticism. Um, so which is why you do need to pick and choose who you work with very carefully. You do. And it, it is to go back again, to go back to the filmmaking metaphor, you are as the author, you are casting your developmental editor. You are casting that, that group of people who are going to be around you and supporting you. So it's fair to introduce yourself to a lot of different editors and say, oh, I really click with this person or right. this this person speaks a language that really works for me. And they won't be everybody. And it you know, can't be everybody. Well, and also don't keep shopping for somebody who's going to agree with you. If if three editors give you the same basic advice, you, you've got to take yourself out of the equation. I mean, that's really hard for um, for people to learn, especially at the beginning of their journey, that uh, you can't take it personally. You've got to remove your, your ego from this and really listen to what people are saying and don't react. And I think that that's a learned skill for the creator. Um, that's mm-hmm. really difficult, really difficult. Yeah. yeah, we would do when for for movies. One of the things that that we had done were our own little mini focus groups, and those were great. We'd we'd invite a group of people over, usually six to eight people. In that case, we'd show them the movie, and then we'd all sit down and have dinner and just talk about it. And it was a great thing because you could really see those, you know, those three people telling you the same thing. You could see that happen. And other times you would start to see, oh, okay, this is coming from a person's particular perspective. Somebody else in the group is correcting that or is, is, is presenting an opposing point to that. So, but you see, this is something that maybe can stand and will be aware that there might be differences of opinion as opposed to Everybody has a problem with this and finds it confusing. We'd better fix that. That's right. Well, because as with anything creative, like and dislike isn't the point. It's it works or it doesn't work. That's the mm-hmm. point. And because you may not like something, but you can still admire it as a piece of of, of creativity or of art. Um, Absolutely. So it doesn't. That's not. <laughs> that doesn't matter if you like yeah. the story or don't. Doesn't matter. That's not the point. Yeah. I've actually enjoyed being in writing groups with people who write very different genres than mine mm-hmm. because um, I feel like it it stretches me as a creator to say, oh, okay, that, you know, I, I don't write literary fiction, but I can see that that's working as literary fiction and I'm learning from that. Right. Um, so I enjoy that, that, that process uh, as well of, of being exposed to those other kinds of writing approaches. Well, and to go back, because it's also learning the tropes. I mean, I, you know, I don't read as much science fiction, but when I've been in a group uh, in past years with somebody who did write science fiction and he enjoyed my feedback because I didn't understand how the genre works. So I wasn't concerned if he was bending it or if he was doing this or he's doing that. I'm just like the story works or doesn't work. And I'm feeling like I don't understand this part. And um, and so we had a good a good working relationship as, as fellow writers because um, you get so stuck in the weeds of the tropes of whatever you're writing that you may not see what you're doing or how you're handling. Yeah, that's a great point. 
Um, I love that you were a filmmaker uh, and and found your way to publishing. <clears throat> I spent many years working in theater as an administrator, but you know, working with with a lot of creative folks, and I always liken the 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 journey that you know we go through writers go through when creating characters as similar to an actor like you don't need an actor doesn't know may never drink a cup of tea on the camera but they'll know what kind of tea and how the if the um, character drinks it and how they take it as part of their process of creating the character um but you know the role of director is, you know, putting it all together and making it. As a writer, you can do all of these things, but you still need those outside people to help you clean it up and make it work. Um, so, and I do like that, you know, you're controlling your own world when you're writing a book to a certain extent. But copy editors um, are the unsung hero of of publishing in so many ways because they fix the language they'll also help you remember that in you know you named the character three different things throughout the same because they'll ask you questions like is barbara stephanie it's like oh my god yes um and is you know they'll also um help with the shaping uh to a certain degree i mean i i I don't know. I think sometimes we all think we can copy it ourselves. But again, that outside lens of saying, okay, you lost this or you didn't complete that is, is that's also a huge skill. I think so. And I think also we, we all come with our own vast bed of knowledge and experiences that we've had and certain things can be so obvious to us well you know of course he would you know he's 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 walking down sunset boulevard and he's turning left on vine and it's like well nobody knows what you're talking about nobody knows these streets so you know how right. can you make this clearer oh he walks by this you know spectacular theater could us give us you know, an understanding and insight so it can be um, a corrective to the things that we assume everybody knows just because they're so innate to us. Well, and I'd imagine in your world, working with nonfiction writers, that's particularly true because they know their subjects so well that they're assuming knowledge and making leaps that you're, you probably, I'm going to ask you, do you need to say to them, People don't understand the leap you just made. You've got to give them more. Yes, I, I do that quite often. I'll, um, uh, it's, a, it's a thing I'll flag usually pretty early in the process. Um, in this, this um, can you help the reader here? There's a subtle way of doing it too, I think. And I, I encourage them toward that. Of If somebody already knows this, it's just a gentle reminder. It won't bother them. But right. it's better than leaving somebody out who now just feels like they've been left out of your work and disconnected from the flow of this narrative that you're presenting to them. And, and it yeah. is a narrative. Even if something is nonfiction, it's still it's to flow like a story. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that, uh, you know, many of us read nonfiction for different reasons. And it's absolutely it's, a, it's a, just a different type of storytelling but it's a necessary type. Um, when you're the proofreading, uh, when you're traditionally published, an author will get past pages. They'll get, you know, after the proofer has gone through it probably a gazillion times. Um, and hopefully you're not reading for content at that point because you get a letter from everyone saying, you can't change anything. Um, <laughs> or if you do, it's going to stay within, you know, because mm -hmm. still work for the typesetter, yeah. um, but it's um, until you go through that process, you don't realize how many eyes are on it and how easy it is for all those eyes to still miss something. Yeah, well, I have this theory that there are little gremlins that creep in all through the process and throw typos all through the content, even after everybody's looked at it. Because 
it's impossible that all these eyes have been on it and there's still errors. So it can only be gremlins. Um, yeah. That's not actually true, but, but you're right. And I think we in publishing do a pretty bad job of, of telling writers how involved and how supportive that process is. I think there can be a conception for people who aren't as familiar with the publishing process that they must present this perfect, perfect manuscript and this is it and it's done and we're all finished. When there's really so much to come, even if it's traditionally published, even if it's not, there's there's so many steps along the way to develop and to improve. And I think if I could tell writers one thing, it's you know, accept that support as a wonderful thing and enjoy the process a little bit more. When you get mm-hmm. the developmental edit notes, when you get the copy editing, enjoy experiencing your words again and mm-hmm. just take it a little bit slowly. Take it. Um, I'll sometimes give writers an extra little bit of time to be with the manuscript during those those revision times because I don't want it to be this frenzied, this chore. My my beautiful book has become a chore and I hate it. I want it to be, oh, I get to get this fresh perspective and make it even clearer and make it even better. And and, and look at me go. Um, well, and so. during the copy editing process, you can change your book you can you know they're not internally well you tell me stephanie when you're copy editing is is production still sort of looking at okay this is a ninety thousand word manuscript so we're assuming it's going to be this many pages so stephanie tell me if my assumption is correct in this when you're in the copy editing phase. You you can change the book. You can add to it. You can you can really do a ton of work. But does production have expectations of how many words are going to be in this manuscript or or what it's going to look like already? So that if you give somebody back your copy edited manuscript and you get twenty thousand more words, <laughs> um, that may be a problem that stops the machinery. That's been my assumption. Mm-hmm. Am I correct in that? Yes. In, in 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 my experience, that is definitely the case. If somebody came back and had a, a an additional twenty thousand words, that would make for a very unhappy editor day. Um, <laughs> I and a lot of times, at least in our contracts, the word rough word count is actually specified. Um, and so we're the the writer is is obliged to stay within a particular window. Um, but usually during the the you know, the development process, we'll talk about that as well and say, look, you're 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 got a, you know quite a few extra words here. We need to be down to this. We need to be down to that. Um, mm-hmm. And in but in copy editing, you're right. There's in copy editing, we're still in the word document at that point. We're still in in the world of you know, nothing has gone to layout, and so there is a lot of latitude for change at that point. And we talk about heavy copy edit versus light copy edit, and the heavy copy edit could be some substantial changes. Let's move this entire section to this other chapter, or mm-hmm. let's you know let's remove this section. Um, there's also in the case of nonfiction, we start thinking really clearly about the visual hierarchy. What is your top level head? What's your next level head below that? And we want to make sure that everything is nested so that it's clear for the the reader's eye as they scan through the book. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but but yeah, there's you know there's room to maneuver, but within certain limits. Um, and you're working with a publisher, core publisher, obviously. Um, but, you know, when folks are indie publishing, they still need to think about all those steps as different steps um, and perhaps get help. Definitely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are there are some some editors who who like to help through the whole process, sort of a, a, a soup to nuts sort of an editor that yeah. will do developmental editing and then come back and do copy editing and, and maybe be more involved in helping to production manage the process. Um, and others are much more narrowly specialized. And again, that's um, the writer's choice. If, if somebody is self-publishing, um, if it's fair to talk about another organization, but as you mentioned in my bio, I'm 
on the board of governors for the Editorial Freelance Association. And they have a, a big bank of people who are editors who specialize in all of these different areas. So um, an editor who says, I'm, you know, I, I've been through the whole developmental process with my writing group. I really want a copy editor can scan through and say, oh, here's a copy editor. I mean, you know, here's 35 copy editors. And, um, and there's also, you can post jobs for the editorial freelancers association. So that's a resource for people who are looking for support in any or all of those areas. But, but you're, you're absolutely right that it should be really phases. So I'm, I'm, Working on the the overall structure now. Don't get too obsessed with the language yet. You know, think about it, but then refine it later. Don't like noodle on this little sentence when this whole chapter may have to go. Right. Um, <laughs> I I like to draw in addition to writing and and editing. Um, and I one of my best pieces of writing advice that I ever got came from a life drawing instructor. Um, and with, with life drawing, you have this, this person who's in front of everybody on a platform and everybody's drawing this person. And it's really easy to get caught up and say, Oh, I'm going to draw their eye. I'm going to start right with the eye. Okay. Let me do the eyelashes. Okay. And I look at the pupil, right? I'm going to try that. And then you realize your whole time to draw has elapsed and you've got 30 seconds left to go. So you're just like, Oh, I'm going to fit it all in. The whole figure doesn't fit on because my eye is this big. So this drawing instructor used to say, get to the feet. In the first 30 seconds that that model is on the stand, get to the feet, head to the feet, put the whole figure on there. And then you can start thinking, okay, let me shape the rib cage now. How about this leg? And then get a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And to me, that's a perfect metaphor for shaping a story as well. Get to the feet. It's not, it's not even, you know, seat of the pants versus outlining. It's just, can you see a glimpse of what this thing will look like before you start to refine the minute details? Yeah. And so that's, you know, be getting to the feet is really developmental editing. And then we get tighter and tighter. I love that. I think that that's something we can all put on a post-it and have on our computers, get to the feet, don't get stuck on the eye. Um, mm -hmm. That's a great metaphor. It really is. So let's talk a little bit about your writing. You are um, you are working on a historical mystery. Tell me about that journey and what you've had to shut off as an editor in order to to immerse yourself in the writing journey. Um, I I have two two pieces that I've been working on. One actually came out of out of film. It was a project that I was working on as a combination of film and prose. Um, and that's about a detective agency in the late 1890s in Chicago. And Chicago at that point was the hub of all the railroads. And so people could go from Chicago everywhere. So it's a nice basis for a detective story because it gives you the latitude to explore the entire United yeah. States at a really interesting time. Um, and because that was a, that's a pretty robust project, I wanted to do something that was a little simpler. So I've also been working on a standalone mystery set in Hollywood in 1934. And that one centers on a, a real place called the Hollywood Studio Club, which um, was created in response to a lot of scandals that happened in Hollywood as a place for women working in the movie industry to live. So some of them were actresses. Marilyn Monroe lived there for a while. Ava Gardner lived there for a while. Um, but it was also people who just worked in the industry, assistant editors. Uh, so there's a group of, of young women in Hollywood who are living in this club who um, investigate a murder of one of their brothers. Oh, I love that. I think the, the challenge as an editor is um, to, sh to shut off that analytical voice and just to enter into the story. And Edit, editorial work can be very precise and controlled. And it's like, I'm going to, there's a lot of left brain to it. And as an, as a writer, it's really important to just say, oh, I, here comes a character who suddenly got so much more important. That wasn't on the plan, but I'm going to accept that because that feels like a really interesting gift and a path that I'd like to walk down. And and be quiet, editor. I don't want to talk to you right now. <laughs> We're going to do this. 
So yeah. Stephanie and your uh, the both of them sound great. Uh, the Hollywood um, novel sounds really interesting. Do you have the feet in both of these projects? I do. I do. So I'm very glad about that. Um, I'm I'm sometimes missing like the bone from the the knee down to the ankle, um, but the, I see the feet. I know where they are. That's you, but that's okay. I mean, you know, it's it's the touch points on the journey. Do you? Uh, let's talk about your write your process as a writer. Uh, you know, obviously, you're immersing yourself in research, um, which is uh, for historical fiction is such an important component. Not just we all everyone researches, but it's getting it right. Uh, you know, so that people who are really familiar with that period won't call you out on, you know, they didn't have that color shirt or something like that, um, which they will. Um, but are you? Do you, because you're an editor, do you tend to plot or have the framework ready to go before you start writing? Or do you completely go the opposite and, and sort of take away the precision of your, your job um, and, and go for just like freewheeling <laughs> um, organic writing? I, I like um, a light framework. I, I'm not, I know I've, read about some writers who are extremely detailed in their outlines um i'm not that detailed but i do like having um i kind of keep a running document i work in scrivener thank you kim keyline for the great lessons um <laughs> and but i always have a like an evolving framework of the story and it's this particular story the one in hollywood is a pretty short timeline it's just it's a span of about a month and a half that the story takes. And so I can kind of go day by day of this is Monday, December 4th, and whatever it is, um, and then move things around. And I, I find that's a helpful way for me to look at it. And I can kind of see the relationship of time like that. Um, yeah, I, um, I, I, I haven't dared venture into having no structure yet. That would be a really interesting experiment. I'm, I'm not sure I, uh, have, quite handle that yet and there's some folks who can't you know we need um we need that structure a little bit um you know i i quoted this use this quote uh several times after it was given to me but phyllis whitney said um a map is not a journey and so having that map of these are the six things i've got to do in this book um, does not limit how you get there or how you how you make that traveling plan. And so I think that that's a difference too. Like it sounds like you need a map, but you don't you don't you don't say, and I'm going to take this left turn and left turn. It's like I, somehow I'm going to get from here to here. Let me see how I do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think that's true for life as well. I I remember um, some years back making a little like sheet of these are the projects that I'm working on right now. And I unearthed that a few years after I had written it. So, wow, none of those things happened. But the things that did happen were so interesting. And I don't think I would have got to them without the things that were on this list and the things I explored that took me to different places. So, um, yeah, the map maybe is an inspiration or it's a, it's a key to open a door to an unexpected pathway. Well, and what I am enjoying hearing from you uh, is something that I, I think, uh, you know, is worth worth discussing because it's not easy. Living a creative life uh, and making a career in a creative um, industry is really challenging. Um, and uh, I, I think I give you a ton of credit for pivoting and for changing and for sort of stopping and saying, I actually want to explore this journey but most people I know who work in creative industries tend to think like that because it's it's a precarious <laughs> um, industry. And also curiosity drives them and boredom when it comes in. They're just like, no, I'm not. I can't. I'm bored. I can't. I can't be bored. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think um, yeah, to stay to stay open to that thing that will surprise you. I, I look back at if I had. I you know, come if I had tried to plot a path to where I am right now and the things that I've done, there's no way I would have picked what how it actually went. But it was so much more more interesting. 
and yeah. I think to to pursue the interesting is it's um ah I I I recommend it. <laughs> um, do you, uh, as a writer, uh, do you think still as a filmmaker, do you, you find that those skills of scenes and dialogue and visual um, moments are are supporting your writing in ways that you didn't expect? The, yes. Um, I think one of the, the things that was a challenging transition for me coming from film is that screenplays are very spare. Um, you're discouraged from putting in a lot of description. That's the mark of an amateur if you start to have these long paragraphs of text. And suddenly starting to do prose fiction, it's like, well, I've got to do these long blocks of text. Not, not only that, but when you're making a movie and there's an expression on somebody's face, they make that. The actor makes that. When you're <laughs> writing it on the page, you have to write that. They grimace, they smile, they, they laugh. It's like, oh, well, that's different. Um, I don't get it for free anymore. Uh, but um, I think I, I, there's a, an, a narrowing in or a, a moving in approach that is common in film where you start with the big wide shot and then you get a little bit tighter and you establish the scene and then you go into close-ups. And I think I, that does um, manifest itself in the work that I do in prose. I, I, I like to create a, a broader setting and then move in and move in and um, try to keep things as visual as, as I can on the page without making it, you know, making it slow things down. That's the, 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 the trade-off. Well, <clears throat> filmmaking, like, like theater, not, they aren't, similar in so many ways, but it is collaborative. And when you talked about, you know, you would get it from free for the actor, sometimes in those collaborations, you're also surprised by the actor, the choices they make or the way they do things. And, and when you're working by yourself, how do you surprise the reader or yourself by reactions and not make it standard? That's a challenge as well, don't you think? It is. As, as a filmmaker, my favorite thing in the world was to just say, and action. Because it was like, oh, there's going to be something that's going to happen, and I have no idea what it is. Especially if you're working with that, you know, the, the right actors with who you're really simpatico, and really they're so in line with the world. Um, I think in movies, you relinquish a great deal to the actors. And you say, okay, I'm going to trust you mm -hmm. with this character and with this story. I think with fiction, there can be that similar giving over to your fictional character. You maybe you sit down and you just let do a stream of consciousness, and that character is talking to you. Like, oh, that's what you're thinking. Oh, well, all right, let's put that into the real story and see what happens. Um, but to leave room for a character to surprise you, because I think they do. They yeah. really there's that that cliche of oh, the character comes to life. Well, they really do, and it's different than a live human being who's an actor, but there is vitality when we don't try to squeeze it too much. Yes, mm -hmm. and when you're writing that character, if they smile in an unexpected time, to let them smile, <laughs> um, you know, as a film director, as a theater director, you can also say, don't do that. <laughs> but But perhaps your character that's part of who they are is they, they, they smirk or they smile when they shouldn't be or something else. And that, that can inform the reader a little bit more about the character. Yeah. yeah I think another, another element of surprise is um, to, to live in our own world, to draw on our own world. Um, there was a character in the, the Hollywood story that I was really trying to work on. Um, she's, she's a very complicated character. And, I went out to this little canteen for lunch one day and I saw a woman with a child um, that was really, it was, it was, the child was really struggling. I you could see that there was a, some sort of developmental issue. And it made me realize, oh, I, I wonder if that is something that's happening with this character in the story. And so it's like this interesting way of real life kind of 
flowing into the fiction. It's like, well, maybe, maybe I should let that in a little bit. And, and it proved to be the right thing. And yeah. that was um, an interesting just gift from being out in the world. Yeah, and from recognizing that 1934 Hollywood, people were human beings and and reacted humanly to situations and things happened. And I, I we tend to rosy glow sometimes in some some periods of time, but under the surface, you know, they struggled with the same things we're struggling with now or or doing things. Um, I remember my grandmother was born in 1909. She got married in 1931. And she, uh, when I was in college, she said, you kids are so well-behaved. I went to college in the 80s. You kids are so well-behaved. You had no idea how we, <laughs> what we did back in the day. And I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> um, you know, you're, that's interesting. And of course she went to college in the twenties. I mean, she had a good time. Um, but I think that's a gift too, is just the humanity of a situation or of a person can be shown with these, these subtle moments. Now, as an editor, do you, um, and realizing you edit nonfiction, but, but as a filmmaker and as a, as somebody with that editorial eye, do you look for those human moments to help the reader come in in an unexpected way or to connect with the work in an unexpected way? Absolutely. The, the telling detail. When I did my, my master's thesis at Columbia, I had this amazing thesis advisor named Sig Gisler. And one of the things that he would always focus on is what's the, what's the telling detail? What's the human detail in here? How do you bring somebody in? And that's always been in my head too. What it's like, you know, if you were if you were drawing someone on the street, what makes them unique? Oh, that woman's wearing a red hat, or that that man is carrying a, a, a leather satchel with it's kind of worn. And so it's the same thing with the character on the page. What is that moment of uniqueness that is arresting and is is like, whether it's a little behavioral thing or just a an expression like the smirk that you mentioned? I think that's just so elevating and so um, just like a little light that turns on for the reader. Mm. I love that way of phrasing it too. Because there is, that's part of the work of the writer is to not just notice that, but to let the reader know about that, but not show them that, don't tell them that, but but sometimes um, don't editorialize about it. If you need to tell them that this is happening, don't tell the reader what to think, let them, let them think or bring them in later and explain it. But, you know, trust your reader. Yeah. And that's, I think that was, was a lesson which came from filmmaking as well, but I always try and keep it in mind whether I'm writing or whether I'm editing is how do you parse out the information in a way which makes sense and at the right pace? Cause it's very tempting to just have the info dump scene right at the beginning okay now you've got everything you need to know we're all done with that we can just go on like mm -hmm, uh, no just here's a little bit that you have to know right now and then we'll get a little bit more yeah. and a little bit more and it'll go in more smoothly um than one big massive dump all at once which again goes back to your developmental editor you need a developmental editor who reads the whole manuscript at least once maybe twice before they start getting your notes mm -hmm. Because they exactly. they'll take their own notes to see if the payoff is there or if the explanation is there or if this character arc makes sense. But you know, if you get notes in a manuscript that you you know you dealt with later, then that means that they haven't read it a few times. Exactly. Yeah. Then it's it's you really I think that's key as a developmental editor that you you again you inhabit it but you you read it you you live in it you you get a sense of of what the writer feels like they're aiming for and where you can help them get closer to that and when when i write a developmental edit note i will often summarize the book as i understand it very early on to this is this is the story that i think you are telling and now let's talk about the structural issues, and then we can talk about the language issues and more specific details. Um, 
but let's let's get a broad view on the whole story. And then if there's something wrong within that perception, then we really need to talk about that. Yes, yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. Stephanie, this has been a fascinating conversation that has, uh, we've hit on a lot of different topics, but you've given us some wonderful catchphrases and things to think about um, as we're as we're writing or as we're just observing, um, you know, or thinking about how we're looking at things and get to the feet is I, I you know, it's tattoo worthy. I think that that's an amazing, <laughs> an amazing phrase um, for folks to think about and uh, and to finish, like finish that first draft because you can't fix it till you're done. Yeah. No. Well, I love I love the advice that that Walter Mosley gives in this year. You write your novel. I think that's the correct title of it. Um, but about again getting that whole draft into shape, and then your first read of that draft counts as your second draft because you're taking it in as a whole. And then mm-hmm. you start and you start finessing it. But I think it's very liberating to think, oh, all I have to do is read it, and that's the second draft. Cool. I am going to put links to um, to all of these things in the show notes because I think that it's gold and it can help people uh, as they're working on things. But uh, that's also wonderful advice. Reading and reading it afresh, you know. Uh, I don't want to put words in his life, uh, mouth because I am not worthy of doing that. But you know, you can't read it right after you finished it and expect that you're going to. Um, have anything intelligent to say necessarily. You need some distance so that you're surprised. Yeah, I think that's interesting too. I, I think it helps. That's what helps potentially to have a couple of different things that you're working on, even if it's things like you know, it's a blog post or it's other you know, other work that you're doing to give yourself the opportunity to keep working while still getting some distance. Or maybe somebody's yeah. working on a novel and they step aside for a short story or, you know, an essay or whatever it is, just to keep the writing muscles toned, but leaving a little room for perspective. Yeah. Yes. No, it's great. It's great. Great advice. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again for including me. I, I, I that roster of people who've been on this podcast is like, um, a little bit of fangirl moment here. So, so many amazing people, but as a, yeah. as a mystery reader, wow, really happy well, to be part of this. And we're, we're, we're thrilled that you can also bring a different perspective to, to the work we're all doing. So thank you, Stephanie. My pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.